in the beginning, the real beginning. God sits by himself, alone in the darkness. How long has he been there? It feels like forever. Has it been forever? How did he get here? Who put him here? Did he put himself here? When did he do that? Around him, nothing. A void, no light. Just him, sitting there in the darkness. Was he sitting? Standing? What was he? Wait, was he even alone? What was that sound? Peering down in the darkness, he realized something. Underneath him was water. Cold, empty, utterly lifeless. It was creepy. Where had it come from? Did he make it, then forget about it? Did he not make it? And if he didn't, then who did? He had to have made it, yet he couldn't remember doing so. But if he had created water, as of course he had, then why had he created only that much reality and no more? Why had he been sitting there in the darkness, above the water, basically forever? He didn't know why, he just sort of had. But now for whatever reason God had a thought. He wanted to see. How would he do it? God tried clapping his hands, nothing happened. He tried clearing his throat loudly, then closing his eyes tightly and reopening them. Nothing worked. Was he stuck here forever, sitting in the darkness with the lightless waters swirling beneath him, absolutely nothing to do? It sounded horrible, hellish, as he would later say. God had an idea. He would speak aloud what he wished for. He had never spoken before. He thought about what he wanted to say. Light, please? No, it seemed weak, lacking in gravitas. Turn on the lights? Stronger, perhaps, but who would he be making this demand? I want light? Too childlike. God sat in the darkness for another chunk of time. How long? He didn't know. Time didn't exist yet. Then it hit him. He was sitting slumped, head in hands, listening to the water below, staring at the inky blackness around him through his fingers when he suddenly knew exactly what to say. Let there be light, he called out. And there was. God was delighted. Excellent! <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today I am thrilled, beyond thrilled, super thrilled, to be sitting down with fellow infant Randy Snyder. Of course, I'm always thrilled to be with Randy. But together we interview a special guest, Chris Matheson, to talk about Chris's new book, The Trouble with God, which is a follow-up to his previous book, The Story of God, a biblical comedy about love and hate, by Chris Matheson, narrated by Chris Matheson. Yeah, that one. Now, Chris has also written a few movies, like Rapture Palooza with Craig Robinson and Anna Kendrick, Imagine That with Eddie Murphy, Mr. Wrong with Ellen DeGeneres and Bill Pullman, a goofy movie with, um, goofy, Mom and Dad Save the World with John Lovitz, Terry Garr, and the principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and another little movie called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Excellent! Now, in the story of God, Chris has God waking up in the middle of nothing, and then he starts creating stuff, which leads to all these adventures and misadventures as recorded in the Bible. Now, in the follow-up book, The Trouble with God, Chris has God taking a stroll through other scriptures, like the Quran, 
Dianetics, and The Book of Mormon. Mormon. Yeah, yeah, that book. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Chris and his great comedic mind. And oh yeah, come support us on Patreon, where for as little as $1 per episode, capped at whatever monthly budget you want to cap that at, that can ensure that this podcast keeps going and also give you access to bonus content for Patreon supporters only. Yeah, Patreon's great. Come support us. And now let's jump right in to part one of our interview with Chris Matheson. I sat next to a guy on a plane once. It was a very strange conversation. He just, he was like this businessman looking guy. Yeah. And he just started talking to me, which I usually hate, you know, right. I don't want to talk to people. Plane, <laughs> yeah. But this guy was kind of interesting. And, and he basically told me he was a Mormon. He was a practicing Mormon. He said, I don't believe in any of it. I think it's all a big joke. I don't believe a word of it anymore, but I don't, I can't tell anyone because it would kill my wife. It would kill my business. It would kill all my friendships. So I just tell complete strangers on planes sometimes yeah. and I let it all come out. And then I go and I live this life and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. That's really strange. Yeah, we, we may have we may have listeners that uh, identify with that. I wouldn't be surprised. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. How about did, did you uh, did you grow up with any kind of religious practice, religious tradition? No, not really, um, except that my dad was very Southern California, new agey mm. and believed in all kinds of every new agey bullshitty thing you can think of. He believed in from astrology to, you know, uh, pyramid power to uh, all kinds of ghost stuff, all kinds of, you know, reincarnation, supernatural things. Um, and so it was kind of steeped in this environment where there was a lot of belief, a lot, but none of it like organized religion. You know, I don't even know that my dad believed in God. He had all these weird crackpot ideas, but there didn't seem to be any God. Necessarily. You know, and I used to say, but like, how does all this stuff happen? Who organized it? This is a pretty elaborate system, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, my mom was probably an atheist without really feeling comfortable saying she was an atheist. She was a pretty hardcore skeptic about everything. No, I never set foot in the church. Literally, I didn't set foot in the church until I was 28 years old. And the first time I ever set foot in one was a big Catholic church in Italy. And I was like, Oh man. Was it in the middle of a, of a mass? No, Oh, it wasn't, but it was just, just like empty. Okay. Yeah. You're just touring. Yeah. just like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So this is what it looks inside of these things. (laughs) Yeah. And I was so struck, like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. What a weird place, you know. And so has that been your attitude towards religion really since then? Well, I I think that started a, a kind of a fascination with it because it is such a strange thing. It's so different from everything else we do, it seems to me. Um, yeah, I would say it piqued my my interest. And from that point on, I I think I started reading all the books 
because mm. I wanted to, I, I just wanted to learn more. I was, I thought it was interesting, but you know, I'm a comedy writer, right? Mm-hmm. So before too long, I just start thinking, this is all just total bullshit. You know, <laughs> this is all a joke. You got to be kidding. These, well, that's... this is the, <laughs> these are the books. Come on. That, that's the, that's the thing that, okay. So like you, you came at it um, from a never anything as far as religious speaking, but when you come out of like, especially Mormonism where it's, it is such yeah. a fish, it's such a fishbowl. And then you get yeah. out of the fishbowl and you look back, you're like, <laughs> especially the further away you get in time yeah, from the moment of getting out of the fishbowl, you become more and yeah. more like uh, just perplexed at how this ever seemed normal to you. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And there's, there's like some kind of, there's a kind of uncomfortable embarrassment about it. But at the same time, you, you remember when you, you have to remember when you look at your still believing friends and family that you were once them. You know, that's the only way you could maintain, um, you know, kindness and empathy when dealing with them. How old were you when you when you left? Well, it, it was um, it was a process. It started in um, 2006. So I was about 32 when the eroding happened and then mm-hmm. in two, 2009 was the crash. Uh, the, <laughs> we, we often use the metaphor of the bookshelf. You know, you start putting things that bother you up on a bookshelf and eventually it becomes too heavy and crashes down. So that happened about age 35 and I'm 43 now. And do you remember, do you remember like the day or even the moment? Was it just like, no, it's just too much. I mean, how does that feel? What is that like? What does it, that it's moment hard, feel like? It's hard to pinpoint like a moment. Um, I mean, there, there are certain things that stick out in your head, like the first time you tell your wife you don't believe in the church. Um, yeah. And then uh, yeah. a, few month, a, few, <laughs> a few months later telling your wife, uh, now I don't really think I believe in God. And, and didn't you do that like on your anniversary? Yeah, we were in a really uh, funny story where like you never drink wine or all at all. And then on your anniversary, you just kind of ambushed her or something, wasn't it? Yeah, we were in Cabo uh, sitting at a, a restaurant table right on the beach. And I ordered a glass of wine. That was my brilliant way of breaking the the news. <laughs> coming coming out of the closet. There. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when you, uh, when you were growing up, though, I mean, did you have any religious friends? How did they look to you? What did it look like from the outside of it? Uh, outside looking in. Obviously, you didn't go to any church. No one invited you, or you didn't accept any invitations to go to anyone's church. But I don't. Um, where you? Where you? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, like a suburb of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley, um, hey, and that's not uh, far from um, where I grew up. Yeah, where'd you grow up? Well, you grew up in the porn capital of the world. Um, I grew up in the sister San Gabriel Valley. Yeah, damn right. I grew up in the porn capital of the world. That's right, which explains just you know a great deal, I think. Um, but uh, no, I don't know that I was ever invited to any uh, church-related things by anybody, and and I don't know why. I, honestly, I I did know some. I had some friends who were Jewish, but they never invited me to like you know their services. And I had some friends who were Catholic. And they didn't invite me to their services. So, so no, I, I was really like completely ignorant of almost everything 
uh, up until my, except as I said, all this new agey stuff, which right. I was surrounded with, and, and it felt like a religion, and it is kind of like a religion. It's oh, a absolutely. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just it's another just form really, of bullshit. <laughs> it's just really feeble. It's really feeble-minded, and it's really lame, and it's got no kind of historical weight to it, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty weak, but it, but it does feel like religion, so I, I did grow up with that. Did you ever feel, Chris, like um, you were kind of weird that you didn't have religion when everybody else had religion around you and they were the normal ones? Or did you feel like you were the normal one and they were weird because they had religion? You know, it's an interesting question. Given how much I think about religion now, uh-huh. and I and I do, I, I write about it, I'm very interested in it, and uh, it 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 actually is a fascination to me. I didn't have much interest in it at all. I didn't, I didn't really think either I'm lucky that I guess I would have thought, well, I'm lucky because I don't have to go to church on Sunday. I would have thought that um, I'm lucky. I don't have to do any of that stuff. Um, I didn't feel excluded, but I don't think I had any friends. Birds of a feather do kind of flock together. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of my friends were particularly religious. They might've been some of them, you know, I guess did go to church, but, but none of them were, were religious enough that they, that they cared whether I was or wasn't, or, or their parents cared whether I was or wasn't. Did you know any Mormons by chance in high school or not that I, the the first time uh, I met a Mormon that I'm aware of, and I could have in high school, I just, I don't, I don't know. But the first time that I, I did and I knew was in graduate school. So that's pretty late, right? That's like 24 years old. And I met this guy and he was an actor because I was like studying to be a theater director and he was in the acting program. And I thought, this is like the nicest, most sincere. Mo- <laughs> he's, <laughs> but he's so, he struck me as so weird because he, because he just felt like he'd walked out of 1955. Right. And it just was, it was the strangest <laughs> Because it was nineteen eighty, it was nineteen eighty five, and like what he was such he was such a weird anachronism. I thought um, he was a very nice guy. He was the squarest guy I'd ever met by far up to that point, and um, I didn't get to be friends with him or anything. I was just sort of struck by him. He was he was very nice, and um, you know, very friendly guy. Um, uh, but yeah, he felt like a, a he walked out of a time machine to me. Yeah. Yeah. He's either an FBI agent or a Mormon. <laughs> yeah. In the eighties yeah. looking like I, that. I mean, my experience of Mormons is they they tend to be friendly and nice and pleasant and genial for the most part. And that's my very superficial impression. Well, that's is kind that right, of, or is that well, a, that's kind of what we're going, what we were going for is like, Good, clean cut, conservative, all American. Yeah, I think that's that's, yeah. that's a fair assessment because we 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 were kind of trained to be that way and and uh, told very explicitly that people that aren't Mormon will see us smiling, they'll see our joy, and they'll wonder why is it <laughs> so happy, and that will make them want to become Mormon too. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> you that's know, awesome. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. You know, that they, it would be nice. It would be nice if there was a little bit more depth to it in areas where it's lacking, but you could probably say that about a lot of people. So, 
And culturally, I mean, uh, the, the Mormon church came out of kind of the wild West and they were like perceived as like grubby mountain men with a bunch of wives. And then the church kind of overhauled its whole image in the, in the fifties under, uh, mm. in, you know, president at the time, David O. McKay. And ever since then, the church has been stuck culturally in the fifties. Uh, right. that's why that guy looked like he came out of a time machine. He kind of did. Yeah. So, so what, what did you do, um, from 1985 and you were in graduate school and you, you eventually became a comedy writer. Could talk a little bit about, uh, what that path was like and what are some of the things that listeners would, uh, would know you from? Um, probably my, my best known film credits are the two Bill and Ted movies, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which I co-wrote with Ed Solomon. Um, after, uh, actually we wrote the first Bill and Ted right after I, I, um, I didn't even finish grad school. I quit grad school Mm -hmm. because I realized I didn't want, I didn't want to be a theater director. So I came back to LA and, and Ed and I, had these characters that we'd we'd made up in like an improv thing a year before nice. and we thought well let's let's um let's let's see if we can put them in a movie so so which we wrote, one, which one were we you wrote, yeah we're both kind of both okay <laughs> the, the, way, the way we would write bill and ted is we would just start talking you know we would just write dialogue and then once we'd written two pages of dialogue we'd just go back and go bill ted bill ted bill ted because to us they were kind of the same now now they now they feel different to us mm-hmm. they're not really as much the same but but when we made them up they just seemed like one guy split mm-hmm. into in half essentially um so we were we were both kind of both um why'd you pick san Dimas? Anyway, why didn't you pick a school in the in the san fernando valley <laughs> ed, uh ed and i used to we used to drive out to um uh, las vegas to gamble <laughs> And, you drive through uh, San Dimas. <laughs> yeah. And, and we were talking about Bill and Ted and we were trying to figure out like where they lived and we just drove past San Dimas and we thought, all right, well, there you go. San Dimas. So <laughs> so raging waters is. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. And I think we went to raging waters at one point. I don't know whether we, we did go to raging waters. I don't know whether we went um, before or after we wrote, we wrote the script. Um, Raging Waters refused to uh, allow us to use their name in the in the title. Like when mm. when Napoleon goes on the water slides, it's not called Raging Waters because Raging Waters said no, which mm. was really a bonehead move on their part because it would have yeah, been free advertising. advertising. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would have been tons of free advertising for them. So that was kind of I, I think not a smart move on their part. And those were filmed in Arizona, right? That 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 wasn't in California. Yeah. That, that that was where I grew. yeah I was. Oh, you grew up in Arizona? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that so that bowling alley, you know, the, I, I used to bowl at that bowling alley all the time. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was Tempe, I think, uh-huh. is where we were, right? Rural, rural. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, rural and baseline. Yeah, and then and then we went to to Italy for for part of it to shoot like the the castle where the medieval mm. you know, princesses are and uh, some of the some of the other um, time different time periods. Um, but, um, yeah, so then I just got into the movie business for, for a pretty long time and, and wrote a number of other movies. Is it a fair, uh, assessment to say that your curiosity with religion kind of evidenced itself in Bill and Ted's with the, uh, 
the George Carlin character and, you know, kind of this, this futuristic, they're being worshipped and they're creating this utopia. Was there any kind of religious curiosity in that? Well, I would say it, it, it's, it's, it manifests itself slightly in the first one in the ways you're talking about. I mean, in the second one, if you think about it, they go to hell. I have a feeling we're about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. It's the Grim Reaper, dude. How's it hanging, death? Right. They go to heaven, and they, meet, and they meet God, and they meet Satan. So in, in the second one, it's, it's really present. I need to strong. see. I, I, I don't remember the second one. I just don't remember it. I need to watch it now. Yeah. It, it's strange. M- most people prefer the first one, but mm. the people who like the second one, th- they like it because it's strange mm-hmm. and not a, con- not a conventional sequel. Basically, mm. we took our two, two main characters and killed them and sent them to hell, which is <laughs> an odd, counter- counterintuitive thing to do, let's say. Um, the original title of it was Bill and Ted Go to Hell, which they didn't, they didn't let us keep, but it's a pretty funny, pretty funny title, actually. Yeah, um, yeah I, think the, I think the interest in, in all matters religious was definitely present way back then. Yeah. Was Bill and Ted your first, like your first success, your first like break in, into the business? It was, yeah. I, I'd, I'd written a, a few other screenplays before. I think Bill and Ted was the fourth screenplay that I wrote. Um, so I, I wrote a few to just kind of learn how to do it, I guess, mm. practice a bit. Um, and uh, But Bill and Ted was the first one that worked, that anybody liked. What was it like um, shopping it around? Way. How did you get it? Did you get an agent and shop it around? How did you crack into that? Uh, that business is really it, hard it, to crack into. Yeah, it's a, it can be a very hard business to crack into. Uh, Ed, my my partner on it, he had uh, right out of college, he'd, he'd gotten a job working on a, a TV show called Laverne and Shirley. So he had an agent. Oh, I've never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a little show. <laughs> a little show called Laverne and Shirley. So he, he had an agent. Unfortunately, his agent really didn't like it. In fact, we had a lot of people who really didn't like Bill and Ted very much. They were like, we don't think this is anything. So we had to look around for uh, somebody who would like it. Um, And then we, we did find an agent who liked it a lot. And then they were just, Kind of one thing led to another, and we got it to a producer, and then the producer got it to a studio, and it kind of was like that. It was a huge hit. I, mean, I remember when that came out when I was in high school. That was huge. The theater was packed. <laughs> it was. It was kind of. It wasn't huge, like you know, Black Panther or something. It was. It was. It was kind of kind of culty, let's say. Yeah. But it was. But it was. It was. It was. It was. Uh, it was pretty successful for a small comedy. Is this about the age you were uh, getting into religion? Yeah, actually, it was. It was um, when I when I went into that Catholic church for the first time. That was like I was in Italy for oh, the, for the filming of, of part of part of Bill and Ted, and Bill and Ted had wrapped, and I spent a couple of weeks just wandering around Italy, and so I found myself as one logically does in Italy walking into giant churches 
And this one was in Naples and it, I was just kind of floored by it. Like, man, what an interesting place. All these weird symbolic things. It's so saturated with meaning. It's so dense with all these hidden meanings that you can look into. I thought it was fantastically interesting. And I would say not long after that. It it must be that after that, I read the Bible for the first time. Did you read it all the way through? Yeah, but I don't think I read it particularly carefully. And I I probably did kind of skim certain things. And it it just didn't really land with me super heavily. And then I revisited it. Um, probably in it was probably in my 40s actually and and that's when i i I kind of uh it was shocking to me how amazing it was and how funny i thought it was what a what a a gold mine i thought it was comedically Uh, heaven god's home in the sky had started out as basically nothingness floating over water boring Now God had begun to work on it, and as he did, he realized that he had very specific taste and that he loved it. It was gaudy and colorful and fabulous. Heaven was becoming the wonderful home he'd always wanted for himself. At the center of things, there was a massive marble sculpture of God, one hand raised, the other on his hip, a stern look on his face. It was marvelous. There were also lots and lots of mirrors. God loved mirrors. There were, as well, a number of heroic portrait paintings of God hanging in midair. Most of them had been painted by angels, who were not particularly gifted artists. Most of them, God much later realized, were mildly retarded. But no matter. They were still excellent. One of the few times God looked down at what was happening on earth, he saw a man named Onan, who refused to impregnate his sister-in-law, pulling out before he ejaculated. This was absolutely unacceptable. Sperm was precious stuff, not to be spilled on the ground. Onan would also sometimes masturbate, which God was infuriated by. That glorious seed is not to be wasted, he nearly shouted as he watched Onan whack off. God killed Onan, obviously. The thing that's so funny about all of these books, to me, is that we're told that they are the absolute truth. I mean, that's built in. Right. And we're told in no uncertain terms that this is absolute truth. Capital A, capital T, like this is the truth. And then they're then they, they turn out to be kind of ludicrous and 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 ridiculous and they don't make any sense. And and even internally they don't hold together and they're filled with crazy details and and hilarious things. So so I, I, I really um I loved that. And, and then I started reading it really, you know, just combing through it, looking for things that I thought were, were funny. And that led me to the other book. And Uh, and at a certain, at a certain point, I got really interested in Joseph Smith because you can get really interested in Joseph Smith because we know a lot about Joseph Smith. Unlike, unlike all this other stuff where it's like 1500 years ago or 2000 years ago. Joseph Smith dies in what, 1839? I mean, it's just, what is that, four generations ago? It's just not that long ago. My great grandfather, I think, was born in like 1839. Um, so it's just not that long ago. And you and uh, he's a, obviously a very interesting character. He's a very, he's a, he's a fascinating character. But you, what, you, what you didn't understand um, as you're reading through the scriptures and being like baffled by how nutty it is, 
because you were never religious, you weren't brought up religious, is, is the relationship that people have with their holy books isn't like uh, reading it from cover to cover on a regular basis. It's, right. uh, it's, they have more of a relationship with their, their community and their local right. community customs. And the, right. the, and the holy text is just something to basically proof text from time to time to confirm what they already believe. Um, right. So a lot right. of them, that's, that's why atheists scored so much higher <laughs> than, than the highly uh, religious uh, in that step Pew study um, on, you know, asking basic questions about the Bible and the Quran and just basically religion is because they don't read the, they don't read their books that closely. Well, and there, there's also such a, such a connection to the, the culture. It, it forms part of their identity um, that I think it's hard, you know, so, so, so for you, Chris, having not identified with any of this stuff, you can read through the Bible and go, what a gold mine of comedic material yeah. in here, because you've got that emotional distance with the, the material and you can laugh at it. You can see the incongruities and, 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 and kind of feel the superiority to it and all, all of that, where, where humor comes from. Um, but people that are in it, um, have a really hard time with it. So I'm, I'm curious what, what some of the responses have been to the, the, the book that you wrote, The Story of God, A Biblical Comedy of Love and Hate. Have you, <laughs> have you gotten uh, pushback and, and hatred from that? Or have people received it really well? What, what's that been like? I think most of the people who read it, frankly, were atheists. Yeah. I think most people who um, I don't think there were like a lot of evangelical Christians who read it. Mm-hmm. Um, if they did, uh, it, it probably flustered them. I, I didn't hear much. I don't really make myself. I don't, I'm not, I'm really not out there. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not like on Facebook or, or Twitter or, or anything. Um, Cause I don't, I didn't really want to, open myself up to a bunch of um, angry Jeremiah's about how I was going to roast in hell eternally. So right. uh, I, I, I didn't uh, open myself up to that. I, I, I think that some people thought it was funny. I, I assume that there were people who were offended by it. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, there were a couple, I mean, all I really know is like what I saw on like people <laughs> literally reviewing it on Amazon. And mm. I know there's people who hated it and, and, and were offended by it. Um, and other people, other people thought that it was funny and were amused by it. Um, but, um, no, not that much. I didn't get, I didn't get any death threats. You know, I, I wrote a movie. <laughs> it's kind of, all, I wrote a movie, it's sort of a small movie that came out 2013 called Rapture Palooza that Anna Kendrick and Craig Robinson are in. It's, it's okay. basically taking the rapture, uh, it's taking the revelations and, and making a movie about what if this really happened in, in contemporary times. And um, <clears throat> Craig Robinson plays the Beast. My name is Beast. He's the Antichrist, Ted. He's the Antichrist. He's the Antichrist. He's not as bad as everybody says. And um, it's it's highly irreverent. In the end, Jesus flies down and he gets laser beamed out of the sky. And, and uh, yeah. Uh, so I got I definitely got some some scathing things. A lot of you you know you're gonna 
you're going to burn in hell for what mm-hmm. you've done here. Um, I, I definitely have heard that. I definitely have gotten that. If you don't believe in it, it's really not much of a threat. Um, <laughs> no, not hell. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really not too scared of that. I'm really not too worried about that. But I think that um, you were talking about the experience of, of these books from the inside. And, and, and that does make sense to me. As I read them, I, I would periodically just sort of shake my head in, in, in astonishment and just think, how, how, how does anybody really um, believe this? And it did, it does make sense to me that like, you, you just, you don't, you don't read it if you're in it. That's not why you're there. You're, you're there for the community and you cherry pick and you find a few things you like, and, but you don't, you don't really read it um, from start to finish. Um, yeah, maybe there, once in your life. You, yeah. I, I remember being on my mission here. I am supposed to be dedicating two years of my life to teach religion. And I would constantly, cause I just never could get through the old Testament, even on my mission when I had nothing but time to, to read yeah. it. But other missionaries would read through it. And I remember companions that were reading through it and telling me things I had no idea were in the Bible, like the time God was hiding in an alley and threw foreskin at Moses because <laughs> he was pissed at him. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> and then oh, there's, that, there, there's <laughs> the amazing moment where God basically just, you know, beats the shit out of Moses for no apparent reason at all. <laughs> After several hundred years of working on heaven, as well as traveling around the universe he'd created, not much, he thought to himself, God felt re-energized, ready to re-engage with mankind. It was around this time that a human being came along who God liked in a wholly different way than any he'd known before. The man's name was Moses, and he was smart, tough, ambitious, and loyal. For the first time, God thought to himself, this is a guy I'd like to be friends with. Moses naturally felt the same way, and so a beautiful friendship was born. This guy understands me, God would think to himself. I can express myself with him. I can tell him exactly how I want my people to act. Their friendship had gotten off to a very rocky start. Moses had not cut off his own son's foreskin, as God had demanded, and God was furious about it. I like Moses very much, but that foreskin of his son's has to go, he had thought. God hated foreskins. My biggest mistake, he had called them. I should send Moses a message, God thought. Get your son circumcised immediately. Yes, that was the obvious thing for him to do. But then God shook his head violently. No, I'm going to kill Moses, he suddenly decided. I like him, and I want to be friends with him, but this foreskin thing is too much. I'm going to beat him to death with my bare hands. God flew down to earth and walked towards his people's camp. It was night, very dark. There were a few small fires burning, a few quiet voices. God stomped toward the camp, clenching his fists. Suddenly he stopped, feeling his foot sink into something soft and squishy. The smell hit him. He looked down. It was human poo. God cursed. He had to remember to command the humans to bury their poo. It was all over his sandal. God was even more furious now. He hated the humans at this moment. The way they pooped on the ground, the way they disobeyed him, the way they didn't remove their foreskins. God saw someone walking toward him from the camp. It was Moses. God charged him and tackled him, knocking him to the ground with a heavy thud. Moses looked up, amazed. 
God he managed before God punched him in the face, hard. Moses' head spun to one side, his eyes rolled, a trickle of blood ran out of his nose. God hit him again in the mouth, crack. Moses' lips split, blood ran between his teeth. What are you doing, Moses whispered, before God grabbed him by the throat and started to squeeze. I'm going to kill you, Moses, he said between clenched teeth. He slowly throttled Moses, feeling the life ebb out of him. God hesitated. Was he really going to kill Moses, the future lawgiver, just because his son still had a foreskin? Yes, he was, definitely. Moses' eyes bugged out. His face was purple. He was nearly dead. Then God heard frantic footsteps rushing towards him and a woman's voice screaming, Wait! Wait! As God pulled back for a second and Moses sucked in a desperate breath, his wife, Zipporah, her son in her arms, rushed between her husband and God. Wielding a sharp rock, she very quickly and efficiently proceeded to yank up her son's little robe and cut off his foreskin. God sat back out of breath, amazed at Zipporah's actions. Somehow, from inside their tent, she had grasped that God was throttling her husband to death because their son still had a foreskin. Grabbing a rock, a rock, God marveled, she had rushed out and in near darkness cut the wailing baby's foreskin off. She had then rubbed the bloody foreskin against Moses' leg and said to him, Now you are truly a bridegroom of blood. God got up and without a word walked back into the desert night, trying to understand Zipporah's odd remark but failing. Then he flew up to heaven and cleaned the last bit of shit out of his sandal. And it only spares him because um, his wife, Moses' wife, runs out yeah, and smears bloody um, Oh, yeah, it was the wife, that, the wife saved Moses from God by throwing foreskin at him. So I got that wrong. Yeah, it's, fant it's fantastically bizarre. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's wonderfully funny. It's, it's really great. I, I, I love I how mean, on your... Your title page, you, you say it's based on a true story. A true story is crossed out, and in its place it says, the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Love that. What, what, what are some of your favorite parts of that, that, uh, that first book that you did, uh, The Story of God? I think my favorite thing is probably the book of Job. Sometime long before, after the Tower of Babel, but before Sodom and Gomorrah, there had been a man named Job who loved God very much. God liked that about him. It made God feel wonderful that this good man, for Job was a good man, a blameless man, really, loved him so faithfully. God was throwing a lot of parties at this time. He'd just started working on heaven, and he liked to walk angels around and show them how amazing it was going to be. Sometimes he would invite 10 or 15 angels, and they would all listen, rapt, as God discussed his stunning achievements, how he had literally created everything in the universe in a single week. Sometimes the angels would spontaneously applaud God, and while he didn't expect or demand it, he did enjoy it. But the main thing God liked to talk about at this time was Job. God never got tired of telling everyone how much this flawless man loved him. And then, at a certain party, Satan showed up. He was not invited, obviously. He was not supposed to be in heaven at all, except for occasional and brief meetings about hell, but there he was. God and Satan had had limited interactions since the whole tree of knowledge thing. God didn't like the way Satan had handled it, and he strongly disliked how insinuating and at times frankly disrespectful Satan had been towards him. So what was he doing here at God's garden party? Did he show up just to ruin it because he hated, resented, and was jealous of God, which he obviously was? 
God didn't want to get upset in front of his angels, so he didn't do what in hindsight he obviously should have done, which was to kick Satan out. Instead, he tried to stay calm as if, yes, of course he'd invited Satan to his party. It's not like he snuck into heaven. There was a strained pause. The angels looked at Satan, then back at God. Everyone knew these two didn't like each other. Satan stood there not saying anything, an annoyingly blank look on his face. God was going to stare right back at him, stare him down. He had no problem with that. But then he decided to take the high road, be a good host, actually engage Satan in a friendly conversation. Where have you been? He asked. Not that he didn't know the answer to this, obviously. He always knew the answer. Every single time he asked a question, he was just being polite. I've been roaming the earth, Satan answered, and for a moment God thought about saying, why weren't you working on hell? That's your job. But he decided not to. Glancing over at his angels, God nodded grandly and said, did you see Job? He's a very good man who loves me and hates evil. Meaning, he loves me and hates you, Satan. Suck on that. Satan's response was quick. Why wouldn't he love you? He has a nice life. Take that life away from him and see if he still loves you then. God felt his entire body tense up. Satan was publicly challenging him. He snuck into my party, and then, when I tried to make polite small talk with him, he attacked me. I should kill him right now. But God decided that it would look weak if he reacted violently against Satan. No, I will act as if I am amused by what he is saying, he told himself. He smiled broadly, shrugged, and in the most supremely confident voice he could affect, which was very supremely confident, he felt, he said, Go ahead then, Satan. Ruin his life. I don't care. Just don't physically hurt him. Satan looked at God for a moment, then nodded and walked away without saying another word. Instantly, God regretted what he'd said. He liked Job very much, and now he'd given Satan, Satan, permission to destroy the man's life. Why didn't I say something like, think whatever you like, Satan? You obviously are trying to goad me into giving you permission to torture Job, but guess what? I'm not going to give it to you. By the way, you weren't invited to this party, and I'd like you to leave. I love God as a character. He's a, he's a wonderful character. He's so strange and sad and confused and angry and, and teetering on mental illness all the time and, and homophobic, but seems drawn to men. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he's, he's, such a, he's such an incredible character. And I would say the book of Job is the highlight uh, of the entire um, Bible in terms of God's madness, his meltdown, when he starts berating and Job. Who are you? Poor, <laughs> this poor, pathetic wretch who's lost everything and he's covered with boils from head to toe. And, and God, the creator of the universe is just screaming at him. This, this diatribe and they, they kind of just start spinning out and, and he starts talking about his pet sea monster, um, Leviathan. And he starts mm -hmm. talking, about talking horses. And I love it. I, I absolutely <laughs> love it. And I, and I love the big reveal or, or the, the finale which is Job's life supposedly being restored by God, but God doesn't do anything. God, God does not do anything to restore Job's life. It's Job's siblings who have to restore his money, and Job's poor wife has to give birth to 10 more children. <laughs> God doesn't do a thing. He, he's kind of revealed as like a big empty suit in the end, which <laughs> I love. 
<laughs> so in, in terms of God being bombastic and mean and an empty suit, oh, the book of Job is, is just, it's just classic. It's it, my theory about it anyway. I think the really brilliant person in, in the Old Testament is, is Solomon. I think Solomon is, is really kind of a brilliant man. I think, it, I think Ecclesiastes is, is, for a non-believer, Ecclesiastes is really the prettiest thing in the Bible, and some of the philosophy in it is, is, is I think, pretty powerful. I, it seems to me that it seemed that, because we don't know who wrote Job, I think Solomon wrote Job. I, I actually think the book of Job is written as a kind of a satire. And I oh, think it's interesting. devastating satire. I think it's like mm. Voltaire or Mark Twain or Jonathan Swift could not improve upon wow. the book of Job. I like that. I like that. You know, I like, cause, cause I've looked at Job, you know, my, my, my formal training was as a folklorist. Um, and so yeah. I looked at Job as a folk tale and recognized um, some of the key marks, like, it doesn't quite say once upon a time, but it almost does in the land of Uz, which almost. is a totally made up land, yeah. you know? So, I mean, it kind of signals yeah. right from the beginning that what you're hearing, yeah. the fiction, but I, I had never thought of yeah. it before as, as a, a work of satire. I like that. I'm going to have to go back and look at that again. Well, the beauty it of Job makes- is, is the dialogue in between the beginning and the end is the story everyone knows, but in between is, is like d- uh, dozens of chapters of dialogue of, you know, Um, how do we make sense of this world? (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, the great, the beauty of it is that it's, it's, it's supposedly it's the crown jewel of the old Testament and it's the most magnificent theodicy ever written, but okay. So the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people is because God makes a party bet with Satan. That's the answer. That's why. The really? end. The end. It ends terribly. Uh, you know, but the questions are are good. Like the questions that are asked are profound. But ultimately, in the end, um, God comes out and says, "Fuck you." Uh, yeah, basically. Who the fuck do you think basically. you are? Have you ever walked along the bottom of the ocean? Have you ever done that? He's he's just a prick. He's just a prick. Really, he's a bully. He's just he's a bully picking on a sick you know, kid who's, who's heartbroken. It's really magnificent. And of course the friends are great comedic characters because really they are the worst friends in the history of the world. (laughs) They are the meanest assholes ever put on on the page. I mean, they're, they're, you just can't believe how mean these guys are to him because they basically, his friends who show up to comfort him, and before long, they're saying, you know, you deserved it. You had it coming. Your kids had it coming. It's, it's just so mean. It's so black. Um, and Satan, you know, okay, why else do I love Job? Because Satan only makes a couple of really great appearances. Right. And Satan's a fantastically interesting character, right? Yeah. So he shows up as, as the, the serpent. That's wonderful. That's fantastically great that he basically, you know, screws up God's plan at the very beginning the very beginning. And then he plays this tremendous role in the book of Job. And, and I look at it like he's kind of, he's kind of um, Bugs Bunny and God is Elber, Elmer Fudd in, in the book of Job. <laughs> he, he just, he just outsmarts him. And all he has to do is ask him a couple of questions. Really? Are you sure? That's it. That, because that is, the, that is the evil question to ask, right? I mean, yeah. when you're talking about faith and belief, 
evil means, are you sure? That's evil. And he just keeps saying, are you sure? Are you so sure about that? And it leads God to the most magnificent comedic pratfall ever put on the page, ever, by anybody. And uh, I think Solomon knew what he was doing. I, I think it's beautiful. I love it. And and I, I pick up on that that tension between God and Satan and some of the things that you wrote in, in your next book that's coming out in May. Um, that yeah. there's that there's a section when you're covering the Book of Mormon that I highlighted that I was kind of like this is this seems kind of strange to me. Why is there this thing in here that there's this ongoing tension between God and the devil? And then there's a longer section. So hearing you talk about this, it helps me understand that better. So this is something you've kind of been yeah. intrigued with and carried with for for a while. Well, the, the Bugs yeah. Bunny, I mean, Elmer Satan, Fudd nature of Satan and God. Satan's the most interesting character in the book. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, of course he is. Because, also in the LDS Temple the, film, which you could find out if you look at for it on YouTube. But yeah. I was going to bring that up because uh, just so you know, Chris, when you go to the temple, uh, they make you sit yeah. through this this movie. And it's about uh, the Garden of Eden. And so the main characters, uh, all well, the main characters are Adam and Eve and Satan. And there's there's peripheral characters as well, including God. God's kind of a peripheral character. <laughs> in it. Yeah. But all the ones that are supposed to be the good guys are these flat, two-dimensional, boring um, characters. The only three-dimensional interesting character, and the only one that's making any sense, is Satan. And uh, yeah. the, the way the way the, the analogy I thought of. Uh, with your interactions with Satan and God is that God is this hopelessly narcissistic, unsophisticated yeah. blowhard, but with a lot of power. I'm not going to draw parallels yeah. to any current people that might fit that description. And, and, not necessary. and, and, and <laughs> Satan is like the guy interview is like John Stewart interviewing him and just, you know, uh, just t- uh, tying him up in knots. He clearly seems smarter than God on the page. He he feels smarter. God seems kind of chaotic and messy. And the nature of Satan is just one of the giant questions of the whole story, right? Like, why is he there? Why does he exist? Why did God create him? Who cre- Who has a giant plan? A huge plan, a perfect plan by definition, right? Because it's got to be perfect because it's God. And your first move is to create your worst enemy who's going to undermine you at every step. Who does that? What, the, what on earth is the logic of that? But that's the story unless we believe that Satan was not created by God. But of course Satan was created by God. I mean, he had to be. Everything was created by God. Um, well, if he wasn't, then we're, we're, we're into a whole different belief system, I think. It's not monotheism, I don't think. If Satan's equally powerful and, and exists from the start, just like God, God created his worst enemy to undermine him, which he does successfully again and again and again, thus driving God crazy. It's bizarre. Well, and but it's, but it's it's, it's, it's as, as psychodrama. It's very weird. <laughs> but it's 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 so revelatory of the way that humans feel about ourselves. You know, I mean, because because these these stories, um, sure, they're presented as if they're uh, you know the truth, like you said before, absolute capital A, capital T, truth. But 
you, you, you study them long enough, you realize that these are human creations. And so these yeah, yeah. are the way of, of humans projecting the way they view themselves onto the universe via these texts. And so to, to take it from that perspective and then to ask that question that you asked about, why would you have this perfect God but put this thorn in its side that is always going to... To, to knock you down, always going to frustrate you. You know, what, is, what does that say about humans and how we, we see each other? I find to be an endlessly fascinating rabbit hole <laughs> to, to go down. Uh, You're right. I mean, as, as a reflection of human nature, of who we are, God mm-hmm. is an incredible creation. Yeah. He, he, is, he it is very profound to look at that way. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, the the Mormon answer to your question, why would it God, why would God do that? They have a very simple answer to it, is that this life is for us to be tested, and in order to be truly tested, we have to have opposition in all things. Um, you might remember that from the Book of Mormon in Second uh, right. Nephi chapter two. Uh, you can't know you know can't know sweet unless you've tasted the bitter. You know all that all the contrasts. So that's the simplistic answer for why. Yeah, yeah for, that's how a Mormon would, would, would react to you, your question. It would make more sense if God wasn't so frequently furious, <laughs> but he's so frequently enraged. At, at, that, that, that would be if he just sort of pulled back. He's the kind of watchmaker, right, and just sets things in motion. And, you know, you got to deal with darkness. But yeah, he the, is enraged the, most uh, of the time. The difference, there's a huge, huge difference between the modern Mormon's conception of what God is like compared to what, how he comes across on the pages of the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, the, the, right. the, the, their, their modern conception of Heavenly Father is what they call him. He's this ultimately kind, you know, white-bearded, gentle, always looking out for your best interests. Sometimes he gives you a little tough love because you need it. Uh, and he's just so sweet and gentle and pure. And then you just, mm-hmm. and then you, then you refer to the pages of the Old Testament. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, right. like these how, don't go together. They, they are not even this, in the same universe. Yeah. And God, I mean, I would say his, his lunacy <laughs> is strangely deeply built into the Book of Mormon because what a crazy plan that is right? He knows, because he knows everything. He's omniscient. If he's not omniscient, he's not God. He, he knows. He knows from the moment he begins this thing that it's going to fail utterly. I mean, he's got this whole big plan, you know, that's like culminating, culminates in Jesus's big appearance in, in the sky. And like, none of it works. In fact, the purpose of it, apparently, in the end, is for it to be kind of a to be kind of, kind of, kind of what? What's the purpose? Oh, come on, Glenn. Oh, Glenn, you are not going to stop it there, are you? Can you at least give us a little hint? Okay, you want a hint? Here's a little hint. It's a crazy plan. It's, it's, so, it's a kind of an insane plan. But tune in next week for part two, when Randy and Chris and I dive deep into Chris's take on the Book of Mormon text. It's badass. 
you know? He's like flying in and he's blowing shit up and he's killing people. <laughs> and we'll do some dramatic readings for you. And we'll find out how Chris feels about the prose of the Book of Mormon. You're, you're a writer. So yeah. I wanted to get your take on the prose and just basically the overall writing quality <laughs> of the Book of Mormon. It's horrible. I mean, he's the worst, honestly. I mean, you know, he gets points for being audacious. He's an astonishment. As a writer, oh, he's horrible. And we'll reveal the ancient name of a super ancient prophet. Mahanrai Moriankumar. Wow, that's a mouthful. Moriankumar. Yeah. Man. Yeah. First and last names, they had those back then, too. It was, it was really convenient. <laughs> and then the name of his even more ancienter brother. It's Mahanrai of the Moriankumars. You know the yeah. Moriankumars. They live right. in the hills. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Moriankumars. And, and, and his brother, Jared. <laughs> But for now, all you fellow little infants, it's time for bed. Good night. Go to sleep. No, you can't have a drink of water. No, you can't stay up to hear more from Uncle Chris. You're just gonna have to wet the bed. So long, farewell, I'll be the same good night. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. Hello there. This is your brother. And I have something to say concerning these people. If they do not listen to every minute of every episode of Infants on Thrones, they shall be. Totally missing out. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum money. They could buy anything in this world with money. On second thought, just give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. A small token for which they have pledged their eternal souls. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.